Let me read the passage from Ephesians that we're talking on this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing our study on prayer. And Paul says this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly... Wow, cool word, fearlessly. Apparently when you preach the Word of God, you should be ticking some people off. Why else would Paul need prayer to be fearless? Thank you. Make known the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's pray. Pray that what Paul asked to pray would happen here. Father, let your word come alive. God, without your spirit, without your presence, without your hand in this, it's just words. And we don't want just words. There's enough words, Lord. We need your words. We need your energy. We need your motivation. I pray, God, that this, this morning, would gracefully transform us to be more prayer warriors than we've been in the past. Help us to really have faith, Lord God, that your promises are true concerning prayer. And help us, Lord God, to be on our knees continually. And to be warriors in the Spirit, Lord. God, protect us from the enemy who would try to get us to hear all truth crookedly and abusively. And just be doing that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. little review here. <clears throat> I'm not sure what preachers did before the invention of movies and TV. Because every one of my analogies comes from movies and TVs, including this one. But you remember back in the 60s, they had a Twilight Zone. They got a new Twilight Zone. I don't know what that one's like, but the old Twilight Zone was really cool. Back in the 60s, for those of you who are old enough to remember that far back, they had Rod Serling on there. He used to talk kind of with his tight, ordinary man traveling down the street. (laughs) Could be you or I, and he enters the Twilight Zone. And it's really a funky movie. There's one episode I remember, and I don't know why I remembered this. It just occurred to me last night. Where there's this gangster, gambler, womanizer, bad guy. He died, and he thought he went to heaven. Because he shows up, and he's in this casino. And there's gambling tables all around, you know, and and wheels. And, you know, I I wouldn't know what they're called, but uh, those, those spinny things. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so he figures he's in heaven. And right away there's this showgirl type that's all over him saying, oh, George, you're so cute, you know. And, and he just thinks this is great. He starts betting, you know. He, he starts gambling. He's got a pocket full of some money. He starts gambling. And he wins. And he thinks, whoa, this is heaven. I love this, you know. And everyone's applauding. Oh, good job. You played it so well. He goes to the card table and he wins. He goes to this other spin table and he wins there. And wherever he goes, he wins. And he's got more girls around, and he's smoking a nice cigar, and he's throwing out the money, and he's really having a ball. But after a while, he begins to suspect something. He says, you know, why do I keep on winning? And they say, well, it's your, this, is, this is your gambling casino. You, you know, you always will win here. And, uh, and he goes, and how come these, these girls, they, they, they never have an opinion. They, they just say what I want to hear, and, 
and you can't dialogue with them or anything. I'm getting kind of tired of them always saying the same compliments and the same stuff. I want real people here. And he said, well, this is, this is what, what you want. This is your casino. Everything goes your way. He says, well, if this is heaven, I want to talk to the boss because I don't like the way it's being run. And the guy who is the person dealing the, the cards says, oh, George, you're not in heaven. You're in hell. And then Rod Sterling comes on again, you know. says, that will teach you not to gamble. No, he doesn't say that. But <laughs> here's the thing. A lot of times I wonder, and I bet some of you wonder, how it is that God, who supposedly is all-powerful, and he is, creates a world in which he doesn't always get his way. Why is it that there are many things that happen in the world that we know from God's character, we know from the Word of God, just are not part of God's will? He hates sin, he hates suffering, he hates, he hates senseless violence, but the world is full of stuff just like that. And so he asked the question, how could an all-powerful, all-good God create a world like this that frankly does not look like an all-good, all-powerful God created it? Yeah, there's beautiful, wonderful stuff that will tell you that a God must be behind it. But at the same time, we've got pain and suffering and mutilated kids all over the place. How could God fail at creating a world that doesn't go exactly the way he wants? And if you understand the Twilight Zone episode, I think you can understand why we are in the world that we are in. God could have created any world he wanted. He could have created a world where you had a bunch of puppets going around doing what these showgirls did to this guy, just saying, we worship you, we worship you, God, we submit to you, God. They could have been programmed to do that. They could be programmed to do good. They could be programmed to pray all the time. They could be programmed to be the ideal sorts of people who would love God with all their might. But, if you're programmed to love, is it really love? And if you're programmed to be virtuous, is it really virtuous? If you're programmed to obey God, is that, is, does that really glorify God? Can robots reflect the image of God? The answer, and Rod Sterling had it as good as anyone could have it, is no. That would be a sort of hell. That would be a sort of twilight zone. That would be a very uninteresting automaton kind of universe. What God wants is a world where he has a genuine personal relationship with people that is loving. And a loving personal relationship implies some sort of decision-making capacity, which means if you have the power to love, you have the power to not love. If you have the power to do good, you have the power to do evil. If you have the power to praise God, then you have the power to curse God. The one goes with the other. And so you get a risky universe. You ask the question, how is it that so much could hang upon what we do? How is it that whether I love my kids or whether I hate my kids, whether I bless my kids or curse my kids, makes a lifelong difference on those kids? How is it that I'm invested with that kind of authority? The answer is, if you want a personal creation where people are capable of moral responsibility and of love, that's the risk you've got to take. And the only alternative is to create a bunch of robots. But you see, when you're rolling the dice, you want it to go your way. And when you lose, you wish it would have went your way. So whenever we experience evil and pain and suffering in the world, we wish that at that point God would have taken control. Follow me on this. But if he always had control, the world wouldn't be worth living in. It'd be just a bunch of robots going through the motion. Here's why I say all of this. 
because there is a subtle understanding among many Christians that really God is doing everything. It's all a God show. And therefore, anything we do and any responsibility we think we have is really just sort of pro forma. It's just sort of rubber stamp. Prayer really doesn't change the way things are. Prayer just changes you. It just affects you. Because after all, God runs the universe. He's going to do whatever he wants. He doesn't need your help in doing it. But see, what we saw last week with regard to prayer, as with every other aspect of our life that we choose, is this. A great, great deal hangs upon whether you pray and hangs upon whether I pray. We saw last week from the Word of God that in one case, 15 years of life, Hezekiah hung in the balance as to whether or not he prayed. The nation of Israel at one point, Ezekiel, or, or, or Exodus chapter 32, says that God was going to bring destruction on them, but Moses interceded. Moses prayed and averted disaster. Ezekiel 22 says that God wanted to avert disaster from bringing uh, Israel to be judged, but he couldn't find a person to stand in the gap. He couldn't find an intercessor. He couldn't find someone who would pray, and so disaster came. And what you get out of the Word of God over and over and over again is that prayer is a matter of urgency. Prayer changes things. Prayer moves history. Prayer unleashes the vault of heaven. Prayer brings down the blessing of God. Prayer motivates God in moving in this world. And that there's a ton of things that God in his glory would like to do, but he decides not to do unless his people pray. Why? Because he doesn't want robots. What we find from the word of God is this. Our purpose in creation, prayer touches the very heart of why we even exist. God is Lord, but he doesn't want to just be Lord by flexing his own muscle. He wants to have his lordship be mediated through angels and mediated through people. And so he's the owner of this planet. What we saw last week from Genesis 1 to Revelation 5, God has put us in charge of managing this planet. And we reflect the glory of God when we like God, love, when we have a relationship with God, and when we have dominion over the earth like God told us to have. When we care for the earth, we are, as it were, doing a little God thing. We're being godly by taking care of what God owns. And the Bible says that the goal, the goal of the whole thing is Revelations 5.10, for the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, to reign with Christ upon this earth. To reign with Christ. God wants co-rulers. God wants a church, a bride, who's not just a showgirl saying whatever he wants, but, a, but, a, but a, a bride that's got personality, a bride that's learned how to be empowered, a bride that learned, that's learned how to reign with Christ. And prayer is the empowerment that we have to rule. Prayer we saw last week. This is all review here. Prayer is, as it were, our ability to co-sign God's check. God writes the check of his will, what he wants to have accomplished with his blood on Calvary. This is his will for the world. He wants to have the world back. Satan was never supposed to rip this from our authority, and so we're the ones, God's using us to get it back. And so God sets it up so that he's got a will written in his blood, but he gives to us the power to apply that will to the earth and to apply it to our lives, to apply it to our family. He's got a will. He writes the check, but this is like some companies where the check needs to be co-signed. The owner of the company signs it, and the manager of the company signs it, and so it is with prayer. Prayer is the church's way of saying yes to God. God, do your will. Have your way. Do your thing. Move in a mighty way. Send a revival. 
God wants to. He's there with bated breath. There's things God wants to do. The question is, will there be people who respond to that through prayer? Because the Bible makes it very clear, and the church has always taught this throughout the ages, that God moves primarily in response to prayer. Prayer is like the, 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 the key that un, un, unlocks the vault of heaven. In a bank, you've got to have two keys, the owner of the bank and you. You go to the vault and you unlock the thing to, to, to get the treasure that's already there. The treasure is there, folks, and God's already unlocked his part of it. The question is, will we take this, this key that is given to us and join God and unlock it so the blessings of God fall out? God wants to have a revival here in the Twin Cities. Do you know that? He wants to have a revival He's got enough religion, enough of that's going on, enough, enough nice church stuff. He's got enough of that, enough nice theology. He's got enough of that. But what he wants is revival. What he wants is passionate. God doesn't like to settle for a mediocre marriage. He wants a passionate marriage. He wants his bride on fire. He wants to have a revival. That's his will. It's there. The question is, will there be people who say yes to that and pray for that with persistence and fire and passion? God wants to see marriages healed. God wants to see tons of people saved. God wants to see people physically healed. God wants to see demonized people all over the place being set free. That's his will. He's willing to do it. He wants to do it. The question is this. The ball's in our court. And the question is, will we pray? Will we take this thing that is so hard for us to do? You know why? Because no one sees it. No one knows about it. It's the least public. This is easy to do because everyone sees it. But praying is hard. Because only you and God and the angels see what's happening there. And yet that is, the, that is the inner chamber of the cosmos, folks. That's what moves the cosmos. So God has to raise up a people who pray. I believe that everything that God's done in this ministry here has been the result of prayer. Sometimes it looks like what is said here actually brings about the result. That's not the case. What is said here brings about a result because there are people who are not up here that you don't even know who are in prayer. There's a prayer ministry that supports this thing. And every day, this ministry, the preaching, the worship, the children's ministry, the outreach, the prayer groups are surrounded by prayer. That is why there's kingdom fruit. And every soul that's ever gotten saved, every person that's ever gotten healed, every person that's ever gotten delivered, it hasn't because we said it right and we sang it right and we programmed it right. It's because there are people behind the scenes, the no-names, who are going to have a really nice crown in heaven, who are doing intercessory work to support the, this ministry. My challenge is this. Be involved in prayer here. We're all ministers. We're all ministers. And the first thing we do in ministry that all of us are called to do is to pray. And I challenge you to take five minutes and more if God leads you to. Ten minutes maybe, but start simple. And surround this ministry with prayer. Pray for the, the, the preaching. Pray for the worship. Pray for the outreach. Pray for everything that God lays on your heart. Just pray for it. Surround it with prayer. If, you don't, if you're not aligned with this ministry, that's great. Take that challenge and tell your people at your church to pray that way. And surround your ministry, ministry with prayer. Because there is no thing that we do that is more important than prayer. There's nothing, but nothing, but nothing, about which in the Word of God... God attaches so much weight. God hangs so much clout on as there is in prayer. The promises of God on prayer are just breathtaking. Hard to believe, frankly. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will they hear from heaven. If then, there's an if then thing. It's like a rule of the universe. If you drop this Bible, it will land on the ground because there's a law of gravity. If my people will pray, they will hear from heaven because there's a law of the Spirit. It's called the law of prayer. Charles Finney saw it. Every great revivalist has seen it. 
When you pray, God's going on record. He's got to respond. He's bound himself. He's covenanted himself to respond to prayer. There's no way that revival can happen if there's sufficient prayer behind it. It's our empowerment for the things of God. There's an urgency that attaches to it. If my people are called, if two or three are gathered together in my name and pray, then will they hear from heaven. Uh, Ask anything of the Father in my name and it will be done unto you. Ask according to the Father's will, it will be done unto you over and over and over and over again. The Bible gives these incredible promises to prayer. Now here's what I want to talk about for the next 15 minutes and then carry on in next week. And we like to be just very honest here. It'd be easy to leave here with a public excitement about prayer. Oh, we got to go, okay, pray, got to go pray. And you go home, you pray for your relative who's dying, and they die. And then all of a sudden you ask the question, which we should address here, because we're just believers asking questions. Why is it that so often it doesn't seem like God answers prayer? And let's not tidy it up. Why is it so often prayer isn't answered? You ask for someone to be healed and they're not healed. That's, the, the, the prayer didn't get answered. Let's just say it. Why is it? And see, you may say, well, listen, just have faith and go on and we don't understand these things. And that's fine to do, but look it. People always operate better. God gave us a mind to think, and when we understand things, we're better at doing them. And and so I want to ask this question. Why is it that so often prayer doesn't get answered? And what I'm going to submit to you is this. There are several principles that are very clearly in God's Word that pertain to prayer, that, that make prayer effective, and we're going to talk about those. There's also several things that we can do to notice when God answers prayer. And this morning I'm going to talk about two of them, and next week we're going to talk about six of them. But the six are closer related, so we can go over them fast, so don't worry. We're not going to have a marathon next week. Why is it that, God, that so often it seems like God doesn't answer prayer? Number one, I believe that very frequently it doesn't look like God answers prayer because we stop looking for the answer to prayer. I think I do this all the time. You pray for something, and you forget you pray for it, and then God answers it, but by then you're not thinking about an answer to prayer. You just, you know, you don't make the, you don't make the connection. When someone comes up here and they're sick and we pray for them and they get instantaneously healed, then we see an answer for prayer. When, when, when a marriage is up here and they're on the rocks and we pray for them and all of a sudden the marriage, they're just glassy-eyed and in love. It's never happened yet, but we're going to believe God for, to make it happen. In a couple of cases, that's exactly what we need. Um, but, but, but if that happens, we say, oh, look, there's an answer to prayer. When it's immediate, when it's right there, when it's in front of your face, you see that God answers prayer. But see, those things are called miracles. And answering prayer in the Word of God is not supposed to always be a miracle. Miracles are something that God will do if He wants to do, and He doesn't answer to prayer or whatever. But those are great things. We believe miracles can happen, and we see miracles happen. But God answering prayer shouldn't be a miracle. God answering prayer should be like the law of gravity. It's a principle that God set up. It's the reason I held my Bible up is I was going to drop it, but then I thought, well, maybe that's disrespectful. But see, the law of gravity. God's an orderly God. He sets up everything according to rules, according to principles, so that there's regularity to stuff. Prayer is supposed to be a regular thing, a normal thing, a healing thing. It's part of what the, the creation's about. And so usually the prayer isn't instantaneous. It goes into the, the mix. It's part of the factor. It gets answered. But if, if you're expecting a Zambao right now sort of answer, you're going to miss it. There's a study that was done. It's in a very interesting book called Healing Words. I forget the author of it, but it's called Healing Words. It came out last year. It's really wild. Um, 
there's a bunch of PhDs and MDs and philosophers and stuff that did this experiment. It was actually funded, I, I, as I understand it, by Harvard, and these, all these papers were presented at, Har at a Harvard symposium on spirituality and healing. And one part of the symposium dealt with the effectiveness of prayer. It's really interesting, because a lot of these people are not believers. They just want to know, does it work? As a, as a scientist, they want to know whether this works. Here's what they found, very broadly. They found that, surprise of all surprises, that prayer works. They found that it works best if, and I, I don't know why this is the case, but it's interesting, but if you've got a loved one, someone who's emotionally involved in the person you're praying for, it works best then. They did two control groups with similar diseases. One group got prayed for, one group didn't get prayed for. The group that got prayed for got healed faster. In no instance was an, instant, was an, an instantaneous healing, but it was a faster healing. It was fastest if there were people who were emotionally involved praying for the person. It was fastest if there's a lot of people who were emotionally involved praying for, that, for, for a person in the same room. It also worked, though, if there were people praying for the person in a different location, but it didn't work quite as fast. Why? I don't know. It's just weird. But it also worked if there was a stranger praying in the room or a bunch of strangers praying in the room, but it didn't work as well as if you had a bunch of people who were emotionally committed to them praying in the room. It also worked if there were strangers praying at a distance, but not quite as fast as if they were praying in the room. Are you following the pattern here? The bottom line is it works, but it doesn't work just like that. Here's what we, we, we need to know. This is a part of the way God runs the universe. He's given us incredible prayer power. But if we're looking for miracles all the time, we're going to miss 98% of the way God answers prayer. When you pray for God to take away the headache, and it's gone the next morning, usually you think, well, it's because I took the aspirin, or it's just because the headaches tend to go away. But look at for all you know, if you hadn't prayed, you're going to have the headache for a week. Thank God it's gone in one day. Or we just credit it to the aspirin because we think so naturalistically. What we need to be, folks, is this. It takes prayer, it takes faith to pray, but it takes faith to look for the answers to prayer. And what happens so frequently is we forget it, we chalk it up to something else, and God doesn't get the credit for what God does. It's a lot like, sometimes believers are a lot like, God bless them, but they're a lot like, like, like adolescent kids. You got a couple of those around the house? Well, you know, they're always asking for stuff. But they don't even notice when you give it to them after a while. Um, you know, they, 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 you know mainly, Dad, can I go there? Can you take me there? Can you take me there? You know, I, I said to my wife a couple of days ago, we're not even married anymore. We just are co-owners of a transportation system. It's like <laughs> we're partners in travel. But you, you do all this stuff for them, and, and, and they just take it for granted, or they want money. You know, you feel like every one of these, these money machines is like, put your adolescent card in, and I will spit out you know, $5. Can I have five bucks? Yeah, here's the five bucks. You know, and constantly, just constantly. And maybe because we're such great parents, but they don't even really appreciate it. And you always got to say, you know, what do you say? <laughs> Throw me a fish. Come on. I need a stroke. I need a stroke. Do you ever feel like just being nasty parents so they'll appreciate how good you are? You know, it's like, I should just abuse you sometimes so you like me, you know, when I'm nice. I don't know. But here's the thing. God answers prayer. He pours out the blessing. He, he heals the headache. He helps the marriage. But so often by then we're not thinking about it, so we just say, oh, well, just nature or whatever. God wants the people who are looking for the answer to prayer, who say thank you, Lord, who glorify him, which is simply bragging on God, bragging on God for what he does. And it builds faith, and it causes people to have more trust in the power of prayer. Be looking for the prayer. When you pray it, don't forget about it. Keep looking for it. Keep praying about it until you see the answer. A second thing is this. 
Frequently, I think, prayers don't have the power that prayers are supposed to have because they are too religious and not real enough. There's too much religion and not enough reality in them. Follow me on this. There's two mindsets that I think are a real hindrance to praying. One is, you might call, a formal mentality, and the other one is a formula mentality. The formal mentality is this. When you're talking about God, you're talking about the supreme being, right? So you've got to show a lot of respect. And so people who are into this error think that prayers are better if they really sound good, if they really sound eloquent. Uh, these are people who like to write out their prayers. They, you know, they don't want to ever pray spontaneously because it might just be a little too slipshod, so they like to craft it. And there's nothing wrong with crafting a prayer for God. I'm not against that. You know, you write poems to your wife, maybe, and, and whatever. As a gift, do that. But in some places, that's the only prayer that counts, and so you have a lot of these and a lot of thous and a lot of thithers and withers, and, you know, and, and oh, you go into this religious language. You ever notice that, oh, God? Thou art so very, very big. <laughs> Thou bigness, and please don't squish us with your little toe. And they don't say that, but it's Thou who reignest on heaven thither, be granted thy beseech, thou now knowest when thou cometh there. And it's got all the if and lith and nith and dith in it. It's kind of codified King James language. And we go into this religious stuff. And we think that God's up there with some kind of top hat, smoking a pipe, saying, oh, really? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not saying be disrespectful to God at all. But see, when when, when you have that mentality, then people feel like they can't pray because they can't lisp that way. Here's something. They they can't quite write it that way. Prayer becomes more of a speech, an art form or something. And then you got the formula people. The formula people, these are the low church people. They're not in the liturgy or whatever, but they still sometimes have their formula. I went to a conference once. It was talking about how to pray a warfare prayers of deliverance, and they had all these things that you got to do. Make sure that you bind it this way. Find out who's in charge. you got to bind it here. you got to send it here. Don't send it to the head. Bad headache. Send it to the gut. Uh, you know, diarrhea, but I don't know. And, and, and there's, a, there's a formula there. You know, when you pray, make sure that you start with gratitude, end with gratitude, sandwich it in between with your request. It sounds a lot like my kids. You know, they first got to suck up to dad, and then they hit you for the five bucks. Dad, you're such a nice dad. Give me five, you know. So God, I love you. I worship you. Now can I? And, there's, and that's fine to do. But there's this idea that there's a right way to pray and a wrong way to pray. And there are good pe- people who pray real, real well, and people who pray not so well. You know, and you've got to kind of craft it or whatever. It's the formula mentality. Prayers are better. Don't you know that prayers are a lot better when they're really, really loud? Huh? Have you ever noticed that? God, you can see God's way far away. you got to really scream. <laughs> Especially when you're doing demons. you got to, come out from them right now in Jesus' name. Now, and it's great to get excited when you pray and be loud, but see, God's ears, you know, it's fine. He's not hard of hearing. But we get these ideas. you got to pray so long or you got to pray so short. And people think then all that does is it intimidates people. So we, we, we develop a class of professional prayers. Why is it that? And you wouldn't know this unless you had an REV in front of your name. But when you go to someone's house and it's time to eat, you get to pray. Always. Why? Because you went to seminary to get trained in how to do that. You know, the Almighty listens to you because you've got the degree and you know how to put the wither and thithers in it or whatever. 
but you get professional prayers, the ones who can do it well, the ones who God really hears, and, and you call them at 5 in the morning when you got a headache because God's going to listen to them. And I can assure you that at 5 in the morning, God's, the last person God's going to listen to is me because I'm going to be so mad, my prayer's going to get clogged up. But you develop that, 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 that mentality of, of professional prayers. Here's what you got to know. Praying is simply talking in the spirit. It's just talking in the spiritual realm. Right now, I go, God, I pray that right now everything I'm saying would be heard in the right way and that the enemy would just uh, get out of here and couldn't, this wouldn't be pushing any buzzers that doesn't need to be pushing. I just prayed. I didn't have to go into religious language, didn't have to put on special garb, didn't have to even close my eyes. I don't know where we got the idea, you've got to close your eyes. When I talk to you, I don't close my eyes. Why do I have to close my eyes? I mean, I close my eyes a lot of times to concentrate, but I don't have to. Prayer is just talking in the Spirit. Another thing you've got to know is this. Every believer has the same authority in prayer. Now, there are things you'll see later next week that you can do that will open you up to prayer more. But as a believer, the reason why God listens to you is not because you've got an MDiv, and it's not because you go to church so consistently, it's not because you pay tithes, it's not because you're such a religious person and you know so much of the Bible, it's not because you've taken a seminar on how to pray. If we rely on that as a way for God to hear our prayers, it's at that point that we're in trouble. The only thing that qualifies us to go boldly before the throne of grace and to say prayers that cause the Father to go, what, oh, what's that now? Is because we are in Christ Jesus covered by the blood, amen? In Christ Jesus covered by his blood. If it were not for the cross of Calvary, if we were not in this covenant relationship, if we were not saved by God's grace, if we were not cloaked with the Holy Spirit, nothing we'd ever say would get through the vault of heaven. But when you become a believer, you have got the same authority as Billy Graham and anybody who says a word for against which the demons tremble. Amen. You've got the authority. Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever is bound in, he in, in heaven, it will be bound on earth. Whatever is loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth. You've got the key. I've already unlocked it. Now you, you do your part and unlock that. He doesn't say to you who have, are specialists, to you who pray without stuttering, to you who don't stumble, to all, to all you uh, for whom the words come fluently. Oh, you've got the authority. No, no, no. If you sit there and just stutter a word after another, God's all ears. God's all ears because you are his kid. And the final thing I want to say about prayer is this. Prayer is just talking. It's just communicating with God. But communication is only communication when it's real. If, if we have a conversation about which I tell you a bunch of things that aren't quite true about me because I don't want you to see what's really going on in my life, we didn't communicate. We made noises through the air. But nothing about me penetrated you, nothing about you penetrated me. Communication is unveiledness. It's openness. And it's honesty. Here's the thing. So often this idea of God with a top hat up in heaven for whom you have to have the right formula or you have to do it formal infects us. And we think that we cannot go to God as we are and be who we are. And so we pray, but we dance around the issues in our life. Like, God, I know you're convicting me of this, but I right now do not want to change. We're not going to admit that. Because we think the top hat God is going to get offended. Prayer is prayer when it's honest, when it's real. The Lord signed 
his check with his blood on Calvary. We sign our part of the check when we sign in blood. When it comes out of our life, when it comes out of our passion, when it's really where we're at. God's not interested in us being religious. He's not interested in a, in a veneer that we might put on. He's not interested in our nice words that we might say. What he's interested is in you. And part of the reason why he even set up this design that prayer would be, be efficacious is so that we talk to him, so that we need to talk to him. But talk has got to come out of the gut. And it means that right now where we're at, we, he knows it anyways, we might, be on, be on, we might as well be honest with it. We're to lay it out right there. That's honest prayer. That's real prayer. The thing I love about the prayers of the Bible is that they're real. They're not religious. They're real. They're gutsy. They're there. When you have a relationship with a person, you don't have to tiptoe around them all the time worrying about saying the right things. What would you think if I came home? What would my wife think if I came home? And, and I, I said, dear honey, um, how art thou today? You know, did you... Nor do I have to really worry about saying the right thing or the wrong thing. When you, when you love a person, when there's a relationship there, the relationship's strong enough to take reality or it's not much of a relationship. There's a big sermon on that as it applies to our families as well, but that's another time. God's a big God. He can take us where we're at. When people have a genuine relationship with God, you say what is true. You say what is there. Let me give you a prayer. A prayer that, 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 that's in the Bible here. Um... Uh, no, I, I got to find the book. Lamentations, Lamentations. Come on, Lamentations. Where are you, Lamentations? Where's Lamentations? Someone find Lamentations for me. It's, I, I, it's right, I know it's right after Jeremiah. Where's Jeremiah? <laughs> oh, here we go, here we go. I hate that. The Old Testament, you was smart. I have a PhD in theology. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Listen to this prayer. Israel's going through a real tough time. They're having a famine. Um, they've been judged. And Jeremiah is a man of God. Jeremiah is called, called from God from his mother's womb. A prophet, anointed, great man of God. But he hits a low point. And he looks around and he sees Israel in a state of chaos. And he says this, Look, O Lord, and consider... Whom have you ever treated like this? So this is a guy who's just talking his heart. I don't see the heathen being treated. We're supposed to be your children, your called ones. I don't see them getting treated like this. Should women eat their offspring and children they have cared for? Apparently, the women, the famine was so bad, they were eating their own children. Or they were, Jeremiah maybe is being sarcastic here. Like, Lord... How hungry do you want us to get? Do you want our mothers to eat their own children? Is that what you're looking for? Is this what you're trying to do here? You don't do this with other people. Why are you doing it with us? He's talking from the gut here. This is a great prayer. Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Listen to this. Young and old die together. In the dust of the streets, my young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. Listen to this. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity, without mercy. Jeremiah is blaming the world's problems on God and just saying out of his heart, because this is where he's really at, God, where are you? How can you be doing this? How can you treat us like this and still call yourself God? Where's your mercy when I look around and see these people dead all over the place? He's talking from his, God, from his gut. And God apparently thinks the prayer is good enough to put it in the Bible. 
said, well, that's a good one. That is a good one. The Psalms are filled with prayers like this where, 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 where David is saying, where are you, God? Where are you with your promises? I don't see a lot of consistency here. I see the wicked prospering. I see the righteous being chewed up and spit out. I'm being chewed up and spit out. You say you're my father, but I don't see any of that right now. Honest, gutsy prayers. The book of Job is all about this. Job gets what you can hardly imagine any person ever getting. And throughout this whole thing, the whole book of Job, Job is railing at God. God, oh, he's, it's, it must really be nice being in your place, God, because you're not accountable to anybody. There's no lawyer that can hold you accountable. You can do whatever you want, and I sit down here as the guinea pig, and I, I'm getting chewed up. And he rails at God. He's got three friends, theologically astute friends, who say, they, they, these are the formula, the formula formal people. And they say, oh, Job, God is righteous, God is good. God is is magnificent. He's so big. You better not talk to God that way. They're always saying that. You better not talk to God that way. Be, show some respect here. You're not being theologically accurate. God shows up, and in chapter, 47, verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 7, read it sometime, God says to Job's friends, I am angry with you because you did not speak of me rightly like my, like my servant Job did. Job said a lot of things, now, and God kind of chewed Job out too because Job said some nasty things. But God says... He spoke true, not theologically accurate. Not everything, he didn't have all of his ducks in a row. Not everything was pure and pristine. He was pretty angry, frankly, but he spoke out of his gut. He didn't get involved in a lot of religious hash-pash garbage and cloud up everything with that. He didn't do his own polite little song and, oh God, you're so... He talked from the gut, he talked from the heart. And where he was at was confused. Where he was at was distraught. Where he was at was very, very disappointed and hurting. And so that's what came out of his mouth. We need to know that God's big enough Big enough to take whatever we're going to dish him. He's a big God. He's not going to get so offended like, oh, no. We can say what is real there. Some of the most intimate times I've ever had with God have come after I just got done pounding on his chest saying why. I don't know if you ever do that, but I picture myself as a little kid being hugged by the Father, and I'm just going, why, why, why? This universe, if you've got any kind of sensibilities, has got to tick you off at times. And so you wonder, God, would it cost so much? Would it have been so bad? Would it have upset some major cosmic law if you would have twisted your little finger and saved Jacob Wetterling or saved Crean Erstead? Couldn't you just snuff out that little killer when you saw what he was going to do? Would it have, is free will that valuable? And what you're really asking for is kind of a Twilight Zone universe, but at the time, it's how you think. Don't you ever think that way? Why? He's big enough to take it. And he doesn't give me any good answers usually. Like, oh, here's the intellectual answer to that one. But what he does is he, through his love, he loves me through my anger. And he wins my trust at an emotive level. And that's what he'll do for us if we pray honestly with our heart. He'll win us back. You know, I really believe that there are a lot of people out there who think they don't believe in God when really they're just very, very disappointed. And they think that you can't be disappointed and have a relationship with God. My father, I'll close with this. My father, uh, we had this dialogue. Most of you know about this. It's found in a book called Letters from a Skeptic. And I was writing to my dad, who was always an agnostic or an atheist, kind of you know, in that area there. And a, about a year and a half into our conversation, we dealt with a lot of intellectual questions, the problem of evil and things of that sort. But we began to get to the core of the person in letter number 12, about a year and a half into this correspondence, when my dad said this, he says, why do you 
Christians believe in prayer. Because I don't see that God answers prayer. And then here's what really happened. Here we're getting the real Ed Boyd. He says, when, when Arlisle died, when your mom died, my, my mom, his wife, at the age of 33 of leukemia, he said, I prayed like I never prayed before. I've never been much of a prayer warrior, but I, I prayed then. And I got everyone I knew to be praying, and even you little kids by her hospital bedside would be praying. And maybe God doesn't want to listen to the prayers of sinful adults, but he ought to listen to the prayer of a two-year-old kid who's going to lose his mom if he doesn't do something. But he didn't do anything. And at that point, I just said, I came to the conclusion that if there is a God, he just doesn't listen. He just doesn't care. My dad didn't disbelieve in God. He just was really, really mad. He was very, very disappointed. You see, if he could have had a picture of God, this is what I tried to give him in, in his correspondence, if he could have just got a picture of God who's big enough for him to be angry towards, to say, why? Why? Then I believe he could have worked through the disappointment. He, he, God, he would have given God a chance to show that, you know what? When you suffer, I suffer. Yeah, I, you maybe won't get an explanation right now, but you've got to know I hurt with you on this one. Whatever else you think about it, it's not about me standing off in some far serene court looking down on your misery. I'm here with you. Some of you here this morning need to hear this. Just talked to a lady at the end of the first service who needed to hear this. Right now, what's real, beneath, behind, submerged behind the veneer of nice religiosity is a real, real, big why. A big disappointment. And you got to know that praying that you got God's ear. That, that doesn't send God away. It then makes God come towards you. Let him in. Pray what's real. There's no good or bad prayer. There's simply real and unreal prayers, and the real ones are the good ones. 